This is Adam Lippi, writer, editor, publisher of RegrettableSincerity.com, and this is an interview with Josh Shalov, the director of The Best and the Brightest, which stars Neil Patrick Harris, Bridget Regan, Christian McDonald, John Hodgman, Amy Sedaris, and a slew of other comedic actors that you'd probably recognize. Now, the film is about the difficulty in trying to get your children into exclusive pre-K schools in New York. It's a farce, so our discussion ranged from how far you push a farce, how believable does it have to be, uh, considering the material take some risks in terms of its presentation how where is the line like how far before you alienate the audience that you're actually trying to reach the film is actually playing tonight friday the 22nd in philadelphia originally this interview was conducted last november but uh, there's been a long time in the process of getting the film out into the open i saw it at a film festival but it's taken some time so the film's gonna i guess start to expand pretty soon since josh is also a screenwriter we talk about his green street hooligan script his working with todd phillips the director of the hangover writing a screenplay for todd and working in the development process in which you literally have to go into work every day as if it were an office and produce pages and get notes and as mechanical as that sounds and we go into a lot of details and and because the meeting was face to face sound quality is very good but we're also sitting in chairs and occasionally hear squeaking i've done my best to eliminate the squeaking but you can't have everything the interview runs about an hour and after that hour there's an extra bit that didn't fit in anywhere in which I make a really tasteless and terrible reference to Capturing the Freedmans, the documentary about pedophiles on Long Island. So please enjoy the rest of it, and you can enjoy the terrible joke I make at the very end. There's something I call splotchy vision. I don't know if you know what that is. Splotchy vision is uh, some sort of stock they've been processing the film, or like the film conversions on. I'm not even sure, because some of them are shot on film, some of them are shot on TV, Hmm. where everyone looks gold and purple. (laughs) And it's mostly mid-budget comedies, like Yumi and Dupree, and any of the Apatow films look like this, Hmm. where there's no middle range. What happens in Vegas looks like this. And it's so off-putting, and it looks terrible in a theater. And what I understood was that the reason they did it is because it compresses better on DVD, the blacks do. Hmm. So they were assuming that people don't really care what a comedy looks like in the theater, which seemed pretty cynical to me. Hmm. But the Sex and the City movies are shot like that, too. They're, They're, you know... Regardless of quality, they're hideous to look at. Yeah. Have you seen them? Either no, of them? No, no, they're no. really hard to look at. They're mm. they're ugly. Everyone is kind of like they look spotchy. They you know it's unflattering. Yeah. And your film wasn't shot that way, but the unfortunate way that I saw it and the rest of us saw it was projected onto a large screen, so everyone's pink kind mm-hmm. of comes out. Right. How do you deal with something like that? I forget which night you did. You see the opening night? It was, the, it was the last show. It was the last show. Yeah. I think the unfortunate aspect of theatrical exhibition is that there is a, a component that you're just going to have to basically sort of chalk up to God. You know, mm-hmm. there, the, I thought the projection the third night was miles better than it was the opening night. And I'm saying this all with uh, utmost respect for the Philadelphia Film Festival. Don't, don't worry. There's going to be plenty of questions I ask that are criticizing sure, sure, sure. So, and, and you don't have to do it. <laughs> I do it plenty. Okay, yeah. I, I, I was actually very pleased with closing night. The middle night at the Prince Theater was, I thought, pretty pristine. I just feel like sometimes you get that projectionist who goes the extra mile and sometimes... Because they've had, they've had trouble at that theater before. I went yeah, to see you know, you mentioned that. Louis yeah. C.K.'s thing. But I, right. in the same way, your, your film is not necessarily... Well, it, everything's improved by seeing the theater, but there's nothing you have to see about your movie that's so big and so large. Do you find that some people... Like, there's that 
that underwhelming comedy feel, and I'm not calling your film underwhelming comedy, but there's the thing that does not play well on a big screen, but perfectly fine on TNT at 3 mm-hmm. in the afternoon on a Saturday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's so many movies like that where if you saw it, well, if you see them in the theater, you're like, oh, that was awful. But if you were to see it the first time on cable, when you were Forgive. just browsing around, yeah. it could be perfectly amusing. Well, I, you know, we're early in the life of this film, obviously, just in terms of its exhibition. But one key advantage that we have found to the theatrical exhibition versus DVD or even smaller, you know, like screenings for three or four people, mm-hmm. is that, you know, the movie gets pretty raunchy. Right. And what we found is that in the smaller crowd, sometimes people don't know whether it's appropriate for them to laugh. Whereas in the bigger theatrical settings, when you have like a couple of hundred people there, there's always a few people who are depraved, basically, and they laugh their asses off. And it sort of like lets everybody sort of loosen up and makes them realize, okay, that's what's going to happen in this movie, and that's okay. And so we really are interested in trying to have as much of a theatrical life as possible for the movie, even though theatrical is such a pain, just because the impact that it's had on the theatrical audience has been really, really great. Color issues aside, and I agree that, you know, obviously we're not, you know, it's not Christopher Nolan, we're not blowing anything up, but in terms of just the audience experience and how they work with each other, that's why we want to really have a theatrical life for the film. I mean, I can understand, because the concern is how low energy a lot of those movies are. Yes, yeah. And that's why they don't play that well. But, I mean, do you... Do you believe, even if it was mockingly presented, the opening monologue in Lost in America, where Rick Reed talks about, if it's funny, I'll laugh. I don't need a bunch of secretaries to tell me that I'm laughing. I, I agree, yeah, I know. Even though, they were, even though he was making fun of them. Obviously. I know, yeah, and he's a sophisticated guy. I, I, we have, I've seen with my own eyes people see the film and genuinely sort of like suck in their breath and not know if it's okay to laugh because it's rough, and uh, rough in a good way. But in the actual, like, theatrical crowd, it does really have a, a, an effect on some people. Not everyone. You know, I sort of pride myself on being able to, I can tell a good movie from a bad movie if I'm at home. A lot of people are like that. But then, you know, the, the crowd has an effect on all of us that's sort of immeasurable. So, you know, that type of thing. Now, I mean, what you mentioned earlier is interesting because you said that some people aren't sure whether they're supposed to laugh. Because your movie walks the line between the polite audience that includes my mother and grandparents and all that, and then who show up to a movie about this subject, who your point is to shock them. And then the rest of us, who I I couldn't be more appropriate for you in terms of this movie because I went to collegiate for six years, transferred to Riverdale Country School. So I know all about this stuff. I I knew all the kids that you're parroting, essentially, (laughs) or the parents. But uh, at the same time, like, there's that crowd. But then how do you uh, appeal to... I mean, I guess it's not really the point. You're not trying to appeal... To people who were like, you know, uh, people who like gore movies or something. But I mean, like, yeah. the extreme end of it. Because I remember when I said to you at the end of the, after the screening, you said, Oh, did you like it? And I said, Yeah. And, it, and I said, Actually, I wish it had gone a little further. Right. Yes, I remember that. And maybe that's an instinct when you don't have the limitations that, say, a producer over your shoulder, because all of your offensive material is, you know, low budget stuff that you could get away with. You can do right. all sorts of stuff. That's why the, the sitcom level of some of it, was like oh you could you could push you keep going if you want mm-hmm. was there was that part of it like you don't if you if you cross over a little bit past the sitcom line then people who are used to sitcoms people who laugh at two and a half men 
which you may be one of those, but, but, I, but I, don't even, I don't even understand yeah. the show because it's three jokes, and it's the same three jokes right. over and over and over. Yeah. Charlie Sheen has sex, John Cryer can't get laid, and the kid says something inappropriate. Right. Done. Yeah, a yeah. whole 22 minutes could be repeated like that. Um, right. and, but that audience, who, who pretends to be offended by sexual stuff, laughs at the sort of ribald you know, BDSM jokes right. on Two and a Half Men. That's the audience that would enjoy your movie because it... It only, it's only about a seven on the offensive level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. I mean, I think from my perspective, we, you know, we've shown it to people for whom the movie does go too far. Mm-hmm. And what we found is that the way it goes too far for some is the language. The language really does... It's just a button for some people. You know, it's like if they hear that many F-bombs, it's like, you know what... The way I was raised, I can't, I can't loosen up to the fact... I can't loosen up and enjoy this film. I'm just not going to enjoy it. The, Why do they go to the movies, then? Well, I, I think that there's a way for them to have a good time that's just going to be a little bit more straight-laced. You know, it, 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 they just don't... You know, like, when... It, 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 language is a button for some people, and, and, uh, and sex is a button for a lot of... A lot of people. The level of... That makes a little more sense to me because people can be embarrassed yeah. at the pr- presentation of other people's... Right. Because yeah. that gets you self-conscious, that sort of thing. Yeah, they're, they're, what we found is that, like, you know, there are just some people that the language is just too rough for and they cannot relax and, and watch the movie. And, you know, I, I don't know if they, like, can really get into, like, extreme violence, you know, if the opening scene is saving Private Ryan is a walk in the park for them. But, you know, the... the the amount of F-bombs in our movie definitely turns some people off. But that said, the level that it begins at and the level that it goes to, the surprise factor in our movie, in general, is is working. So, you know, I don't know if it... it, it you know, I'm not, I'm not so calibrated or, or um, calculated that I'm, like, thinking, okay, I'm going to take the two-and-a-half-men audience and I'm going to crank it up to this... You know, like, I went for my own gut feeling is what I did, you know, so... I wasn't even saying you're wrong, but I think you're probably aware of what I'm referring to. I am, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's a, a cliff that you can go over, yes. and I've talked to, when I talked to, did you see Conviction? No, no, I haven't. Okay, yeah. originally there's a piece of the movie, and it's actually on my interview with uh, Tony Goldwyn and um, Sam Rockwell, and then the woman who the movie's based on was sitting next to me. Nice. Yeah. And um, I don't know if you, do you know what it's about? Yeah. In real life, the guy died six months after he got out of prison. Yeah, yeah I did hear that. Yeah. They left it out of the movie. Yeah. And I asked why you said you were struggling to figure out whether or not, you know, facts versus drama and, you know, where that line is. And, mm-hmm. and he said, well, people just couldn't take it. Yeah. There was, even it's just information. Um, and, and he mm-hmm. said, but there were some people who thought, oh, that's really great. And other people couldn't take it overall. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I thought the movie was pretty hammy and pretty lifetime movie of the week already. Mm-hmm. And to t- that, take that part out seemed pretty dishonest because it adds a level of irony that's, well, there's, there's no subtext in the movie. That's yeah. part of the problem. It doesn't it's, seem like a movie that's going to be reaching for that extra level of irony. Not having seen the film, no right. offense to anyone. Et cetera, no, no, no. Et cetera. Yeah. I, I'm sure Tony Goldwyn is fine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I guess, you know, with my movie, the I was given total, total freedom to do exactly what I wanted. So the level that it goes to is my funny bone. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So I'm not really like... Gaspar Noé, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm a little more mainstream than that. Well, I mean, you know what? His is calculated, though. You know, I've always thought that, mm-hmm. and I only enjoy his first film, really, I Stand Alone, which I think is hilarious. Yeah, I think yeah, it's yeah. like a dirty version of a Law Order episode. Hence that dun-dun noise you keep hearing right, throughout right, right, every right. time someone says something naughty, basically. Yeah, right. But you saw Enter the Void? 
No, I haven't seen that yet. It's the most self-indulgent thing you could imagine. But at the same time, he's really calculating shocks. He's really trying to offend you. He's really trying to annoy the audience. And since you live in New York, you understand this, the Angelica audience. But that audience, I used to go to movies there all the time, constantly. Mm -hmm. And there'd be people who show up to a movie like Crash. And I'm not talking the Haggis Crash. I'm talking the Cronenberg Crash. And they'd walk out within like 25 minutes. I'm thinking, what the hell were you expecting? (laughs) People walking out of kids. People walking out of all this stuff. People walking in the company of men and Chuck and Buck. And all these things that I find particularly entertaining. But... But you showed up to this movie. You knew what you were getting into. This can only be some sort of snobbery where you're like, well, mm. I never sort of, well, yeah, you know, cliche. You know what you were getting into, though, because, I mean, you are obviously a cinephile. You know your homework. You, you, uh, you read your reviews cautiously. Yeah, but you know, you most, of the movies, most of the movies of the Angelica, and I'm assuming it's still like this, you wouldn't have heard of them because they don't have money to advertise them. So the only yeah. way to, to know what they're about is to read the description. Yeah. And yeah. yet, you know, Chuck and, Chuck and Buck is one of the most awkward, uncomfortable movies that I've ever seen. I love it, though. Yeah. But, and it does look like it was shot through a sponge. That's, that's, right. that's one of the worst-looking DV movies ever. ever. Yeah. But at the same time, you know what you're, you know, in order to understand what it was, I read about it first. Yeah. And the gay relationships and, and the stalking and the whole, you know, you, you don't go in expecting, like, Bill Cosby to show up and start, you know, right. serving their own pudding. I don't, yeah, I, it's just something I don't understand unless that they're making a, a specific stand that's very pretentious. Like, I am better than this, even though I paid to get in here. No, I, I my guess is that they are, I mean, I, my guess is that you go on the same blogs I do and that, you know, you really know what's going on in the movie sphere. And even just in the wind, if you're not reading a reviewer in particular, or even if you're avoiding spoilers assiduously, mm-hmm. you know what's going on. Whereas most people, like my wife, I, I'm jealous of the way that my wife watches movies because she has no idea yeah, what I miss, is coming. You I, know what I, I miss that too. No idea. And it's just great, just like naturally. When was, that, when was the last time that happened to you? Where you just didn't know? Well, you know what? Honestly, it's with TV. It's with The Wire and Breaking Bad. Like, okay. That's where I've been just absolutely jaw on the floor I have no idea what's about to happen and it's so engrossing I feel like the way that films are marketed I mean I tried my best the, the press was so rapturous about the social network but in addition to you know you can't help but read some of those reviews it's a true story and so we all know yeah I mean I guess it would be nice to live in like we don't have that yeah. you know advantage where we can go in a movie blind now I try to do that with some of the screenings that I go mm-hmm. to yeah but mm-hmm can't always do it. I, I think the last movie I was completely blind on was, was 10 years ago when I saw Sexy Beast. I had no idea what I was getting Oh, to. that's great. That's a great way to see it, that movie. It is. Yeah. Um, when was the last time that happened to you? The first thing that popped into my head, and it is also 10 years ago, was the Celebration Fest in the, the Danish film, mm-hmm. The Vinterberg. Mm-hmm. Could not believe the movie. Just from beginning to end, it was just like audibly gasping at the thing. Talented Mr. Ripley stunned me. You know, like I couldn't quite believe the it 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 felt so Hollywood and lush, and I don't think I've seen a better truly expensive movie since Ripley, just from a personal standpoint. And definitely, a lot goes to the fact that I was just staying out of the way of the reviews, and it was one of those weird happenstances where I actually successfully stayed out of the, the reviews, and it actually I was watching the last reel of the film uncovering my eyes podcast listeners holding my hands to my face <sighs> something else recently um, well actually a question about Councilman Mr. Ripley mm-hmm. have you ever read the book no okay in the book his sexuality is hinted at because that's what he could get away with in the 50s in a book yeah so the 60s version which is Purple Noon right yeah he's straight 
<laughs> right. Yeah. In the in the '90s, <laughs> French, right? It's yes. French, and they couldn't even. Yeah. yeah didn't matter. Yeah. And, and the the uh, '90s version, he's out and out gay. What's interesting about the book is that he's gay, but they won't talk about it or say it, and right. it adds extra levels of tension mm-hmm. and reveal that are not in the movie, which 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 allows itself to be a little more explicit. I don't mean explicit like with nudity. I mean explicit with sexuality. And, and I think that hurts the movie in yeah, a way. Yeah, I was going to say. I think it could have been made it. sort of in the 80s, and it made it work better because of the restrictions <laughs> then. Right. But it would have been okay, yeah. you know, one of those sort of, uh, hell, you could have done it trashy like any of the mid-80s Hal Ashby stuff, like England Ways to Die yeah. or, you know, it's not. I'm not talking like, you know, drug cop movie. I'm talking just like, a James Woods type early 80s thriller mm. except James Woods not playing Ripley but you right. get the idea just that sort of 80s sleaze I think would have worked for it the thing about Ripley I mean it sounds like we both like the movie mm-hmm. so it's not like I'm, I'm defending it too hard I don't know if I would go as far as to say that he's out and out gay in the movie I mean he's a psychopath and I, I feel like his insecurity is so deep that he would have fallen in love with Whoever he would have fallen if if you know if Dickie Greenleaf were a giraffe, mm-hmm. he would have fallen in love with the, the giraffe simply to be simply to assimilate. Right. Well, think of it as in terms of Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. What's the most interesting thing yeah. in Lawrence of Arabia is that all that subtext that he's gay and yeah, they can't yeah, deal right. with it and they can't talk about mm-hmm. it, but it's all over every scene. Right. And it's as Spartacus again, by the way. And and it's but it's a great scene with Tony Curtis yeah. and uh, Lawrence Olivier. What is it? Uh, I like apples and bananas. What is he say? I, I can't remember uh, this. Oh, I can't remember. I know what you're talking you about. You know what I'm talking about. Because I've seen the cellular closet a number of times. Yeah, there you go. It's like, I like apples and chocolate. Yeah. Whatever he says, he's just like laying it out there right. for us. That's beautiful. Yeah. But anyway, so uh, let's talk about the homosexual subtest and the best, best and the brightest. It's all ass talk. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess part of what you're, you you have to deal with is that, that uh, Neil Patrick Harris came out. And yeah. there's the and, – and I don't think it's fair because it's irrelevant – but that that it hurts in some way, and does it really hurt? I don't know. Was did did six days, seven nights? Was that hurt by Anne Hesh? Oh, yeah. No, I don't think it because it's such a mediocre, forgettable movie. I don't see it making a lot of money, and it just got more attention that way. Right. Yeah. You know, in our situation, I feel like you know the the hot potato was really in the hands of How I Met Your Mother. You know, when he came out, you know, he was playing an you know an exuberantly he's playing Dan, he's playing Dan Fielding. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, that I think the people have already spoken in that they don't just accept him as a heterosexual character, they embrace him as a heterosexual character. So, you know, my producers and I, you know, we talked about Neil, he was our first choice for the part, and we basically said, is this going to be in a distraction? And none of us thought it would be a distraction, we just thought he was going to be great, and we went with it, and I don't, I don't think that, I don't think I've spoken to anyone who has been distracted by it, he's just, you know, he's a great actor, and he's hilarious. And we may just be past that point in history, which Hopefully. is which is nice. Yeah, I mean, I guess it yeah. works a little differently because of the the uh, door slamming genre that you're you're working in. Yeah, but I guess you, you, when you mentioned after the screening about like having to make it believable, but where is that line? Because I think it was Paul and Gale who wrote that Tootsie was the only believable farce. Believable farce. That's one of my favorite reviews ever. The line for us was slavishly copying Tootsie and Fish Called Wanda as much as we could. I I have that book by my bedside. That that. Oh, I have all of them. Oh, yeah. I have all the out-of-print ones, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, met her. I'm like je- jealous. Yeah. I met her. A mutual friend of ours is a writer named Roy Blunt, Jr. So I met her up in Great Barrington. You know, she's up in Western Mass. Mm-hmm. And I was in the middle of, like, my full-on Tarantino love affair. So it was, like, mid-'90s, you know, right after Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. 
and I was since she obviously wasn't writing anymore, I was dying to know what she thought of of Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. She liked Godard, so she liked Godard. Yeah, she, she got me to see Weekend, and I love Weekend. There you go. At least there you go. Her her one line review of Tarantino was, "I he's obviously a great talent, but I simply wish he didn't have to rely on sadism, and that's how she pronounced it, to get his effects." Which, I don't know, even for Pauline Kale feels a little fuddy-duddy-ish. I don't know. I mean, you know, like, I, I don't know. I was surprised to hear that. But then again, it's Pauline Kale season, like, 2001. So I wasn't surprised to hear some pushback on Quentin Tarantino. But anyway. Um, well, there's lots of reasons to dislike Tarantino as a person. No, no, no yeah. You see him on TV, that's enough reason. Yeah, right, right. You see him in a movie acting, it's enough reason. <laughs> you can right. see his, you can feel his smugness in certain movies. But that's not what she was talking about. Yeah. She was definitely talking about, like, the films themselves. She was not overblown rave. She was, she had some reservations about Tarantino. Which I, again, I wish I had, I wish I could read Pauline Kael's Pulp Fiction review. As I'm sure he does. He does. Well, so, that's why you've, you've read the uh, the script for Rushmore, where Wes Anderson went up to to her house and showed her the movie because she liked Bill Murray. Oh, is that true? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know. You that. Read the oh, opening. Wait, wait, I think I did hear that story. If you and what did she say? She, she she took the print like to her house or something. He like took that? a videotape, I think. Okay, yeah, yeah. Right. And showed it at her house or something like wow. that because yeah. he said, "Well, I heard you know I know you like Bill Murray," and so he and know, she and she dissed him, right? She like didn't say a word. She didn't. She said <laughs> she said something like. The studio let you get away with it. Right. Something okay, like that. Good. Yeah. Which, I guess watching Rushmore is, is a fair assessment, yeah, yeah, yeah. because it is strange that someone let him make the movie. It's true. It's true. But then they let him make that same movie four or five times yeah, in a row, right. so... But she didn't say, like, nice movie, or, you know, like, no. a great job. Yeah. When, when, when yeah. would you say that? Uh, okay, so you were talking about where's the line, but believable farce, you know. <sighs> Subjective. I hate to cop out. I don't think I'm copping out. I mean, I... We... You know, my, I'm, I'm, when I say we, I'm speaking my co-writer, uh, Michael Yeager and I. We, we definitely are ourselves both fathers in real life who have dealt with private school in real life. Uh, and also, like, lovers of classic, but, you know, still very accessible farce. Tootsie and Fish Called Wanda. Those were really our two main role models for this thing. I mean, I guess by feel, you know, the farthest that Fish Called Wanda pushes it is maybe that brilliant, brilliant slamming doors scene. He's on the couch with Jamie Lee Curtis. His ex-wife comes back. Kevin Klein is behind the door. They slam the door. He's screaming that whole champagne bit. I mean, that's honestly maybe my favorite sequence in the film. And we wanted to do a sequence like that, and that's where the book club sequence is with everyone there, and there's so much going on. Is it believable? I don't know. It feels, Not really. It feels, yeah, you know, it feels like believability is never really the goal as much as... But then again... There must be always some personal, very personal sense of a barometer of like, okay, that would be pushing it too far, but I think we can get away with this. Right, because yeah, yeah. Neil Patrick Harris is, is your straight man. That's right. That's and you right. have yeah. to, like, where do, what do you tell Christopher McDonald? You go, all right, just cartoon this up as much as you can. No, no, no. You know, I mean, like, he just completely plays it straight. I mean, he got it completely. You know, we wrote the part for Chris McDonald. I could see that. Okay, yeah. We, we love... <laughs> there, there is a, such a thing as a Christian McDonald part. Yeah, that's it. Exactly, yeah. And we were just huge fans of his from uh, uh, Thelma and Louise in particular. Leave it to Beaver. Leave it to Beaver. <laughs> that's right. His biggest payday ever, by the way. I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it. I've interviewed enough people to know that, that uh, it's usually like the shittiest thing that they did. They're right, like, right. yeah. What was it? David Cross talking about why he did the album and the Chipmunks movies. To get that house, right? Yeah, to get that house. <laughs> that's right, yeah. But anyway, you know... Street, street credibility doesn't pay the bills. So. That's right. Yeah. 
I don't know where the line is, but you know, we we pushed it as far as we felt like we wrung what we felt to be the last joke out of the situation and you know, tried to move on. But in general, you know, we, we were just we were jonesing about the farcical form or what what we felt to be the farcical form in general. Broke down Tootsie, you know, as much as we could. There's the the equivalent sequence in Tootsie is and it's not at all believable. It's like she's he she Hoffman as Dorothy is babysitting for Jessica Lange's right. baby, you know, comes home and what's his face? Uh is serenading out the window, you know, like all these things happening at the Oh, is it's um uh, the police what's academy. Uh, yeah, George Gaines. All this stuff is happening at once. It's Act two crashing down. Oh, and in the night that uh, Charles Durning proposes. Right. So it's like one, two, three, all in a row. So those three things happening would never happen, but right. you want that kind of bowling pin effect to happen. We're like, that's that's what we want to push. And, you know, we knew that we wanted Neil reading the poetry at the end for real. Sorry to spoil it. But, uh, you know, it was like, that's the payoff that the movie If wants. anyone would listen to half an hour of this, which is how long it's been going. <laughs> that's right, yeah. Speaking of how, where the line is, I... I'm embarrassed to say, well, what the hell, we all have our gaps. I missed Superbad. Just, like, missed it. Cut it on Friday night. Mm-hmm. You've seen Superbad? Yeah. The period blood scene? Yeah. Holy sh... I could not believe that a studio actually let them make well, that Well, that scene. made for so, so little be, money, and, and it's already... You're already in an, an R, and... Uh, it's all talk. And, and the other thing that you have to remember is that Carla Gallo is such a sport. She is willing yeah. to take a beating in every, <laughs> every Judd Apatow production. She, she gets the foot in the nose That's in, right. in, in right. 40-Year-Old Virgin. Yeah. I okay. mean, you know, with our thing, we're really just trying to get it formally right and, you know, make ourselves laugh. And really, it's, it just couldn't be more subjective in the end, you know. Like, I mean, think of it this way. All right, the, the period blood is the equivalent to the paint on Ben Affleck and Days and Confused because it's almost the same movie at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what does the pain really represent? Let's, it's white pain. Right. This, is not, this is not a... This is not a genius to figure that one out. Although I don't know how many 15-year-olds are really picking up on it. But yeah, we have our own stain in our film, so we must be chasing the same grail. The, the whole thing has a very 80s feel, which obviously felt intentional. Thank you very much. Part of what I found interesting is that now it doesn't work the same way in terms of the... The, like getting into kindergarten and Manhattan isn't the thing. No, you is could, right? Well, Queens and Brooklyn are okay too. Like yes, you get into a school yeah, in Park yeah. Slope, that's just as good. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're still going to get into your Ivy League school, you know, eventually out of right. whatever that is. Queens? I it depends know. on where you are. Yeah. I, I lived in Astoria and I think that would have been okay. Yeah. In certain parts of Astoria. Forest Hills is really nice, right? Forest Hills in Queens is Yeah, really but nice. you got to go pretty far. I mean, you know. Yeah. You gotta stay away from Shea or whatever it's called now, City Field. Like yeah. that's not a good neighborhood. They yeah. never put stadiums in good neighborhoods. I never no, get it. No. But Forest Hills is like a little oasis. I remember when we were we knew we couldn't afford Manhattan anymore, mm-hmm. and we're like, where can we still get on the subway? Mm-hmm. And so we went wandering out to Forest Hills. Yeah, no, I mean I I think Manhattan remains the the, right. the Tiffany gold standard for the city, but the city has expanded. I mean Brooklyn, yeah. But I mean, you just you just dated yourself. You said Tiffany's. Tiffany's is already right. dated. <laughs> What's the Dubai equivalent of Tiffany? I don't know. We were in Park Slope when we went through this uh, these shenanigans. We did the whole dance with Berkeley Carroll. You know Berkeley Carroll. That was our school that we were chasing, and we. Went through all the crap to get our oldest into Berkeley Carroll, and that's when actually we moved to L.A. So we never actually went through with the actual school thing. So we moved from New York to L.A. after we... But that was enough to sort of 
sample it and see that it was ridiculous enough, so file it away and then, you know, wrote the movie a few years later. Did you ever have the feeling that you should sue Extreme Dating for stealing your idea? Extreme Dating? I don't think I know. It's a, it's a dating show mm-hmm. that's very much like Game Killers. Oh, God! Oh, that's funny. Um, um, and not, it's not parody, though. It's like literally like the exes are in a limo at the end, okay, and yeah. they, they're, they're, they're commenting in the girl's ear about what to do. I, I'm only okay. kidding. I know you wouldn't, you know, you only, you were, yeah, you were yeah, satirizing yeah. it, so it's okay. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And I had a weird involvement with Game Killers. It was very strange. I did a job for money. It was, uh... There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, no, no, I know. Believe me, no shame. It was one of those weird things where... Well, the, the aspect of Game Killers that... What, this was the point where I got fired. Basically, the... Okay, the... The idea of Game Killers, I'm explaining that to the podcast audience, this was a show that I wrote as a pilot for MTV, and it was branded content, right, which is how it came to be Axe, the mm-hmm. uh, body spray, had already bought the time on MTV, so it was already going to air, we knew this. And the basic idea of the Game Killers was that the there are, there are archetypes who are out there looking to basically prevent you from getting laid. Well, they're cock blockers. Yes, exactly. And, you know, the, the recognizability of the cock blockers is the sort of central joke. So you have, like, the friend of the chick who shows up and suddenly has, like, a crying fit, and so the, your girl is going to go deal with her friend. There's, like, some rich guy who comes over and makes you look poor at the bar, whatever. So those archetypal guys come over, and the basic idea was you shoot it like a reality show, you wander in the actors who are playing these archetypes, and then you watch the reaction. Now, I'm not a huge reality connoisseur, but that basically made sense from a candid camera perspective. It's like, all right, it depends basically on how good the actor playing the you know the archetype is, and some of the actors that they got were genuinely funny. And how shallow the other person at the table is. Yes, exactly, right? And then we are literally like a couple of weeks away from shooting this thing. And, you know, we've created all the scenarios and, you know, like, oh, this is where we'll put the cameras and everything like that. And the director, who will remain nameless, says, okay, I but have But you can look idea. it up if you want. Yeah, right. <laughs> I have an idea, which is that we should tell the contestants. Right? Literally, like, the one thing that you can do to fuck up the contest is, is like, you, you, you tell them... That they're being filmed, so... That's, that's what didn't work. Have you ever seen Ali G, the British version? No. It's exactly what doesn't work. He does in front of the studio audience. Really? No. All right. So... Imagine how that, that, imagine how that wouldn't work at all. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's so strange. All right. So, that was... I, I was like, that's... That... that the, the whole point is the, is the real reaction of the people while they're essentially being punked. And so they fired me. And they were right to fire me because I could not understand what the hell they were doing. But I did get a credit on it, which... Is a dubious thing. Something to be made fun of, but I'll take that. It's not. Look, it's not. You, you, considering what I watched of your stuff today, I couldn't find Clowns. Is that available? Somewhere? No, no, no. Very, very unavailable. Clowns was the, a movie that I made when I was 25, and it is the most pretentious movie ever made, and there's been a lot of pretentious first movies made. You know, I, I was, you know, very, very flush with. Uh, you know, the sort of Tarantino myth and very excited to be a filmmaker. And the the weird break was that my first ever script actually got financed because it was the first internet bubble. And so there was just too much money, you know, mm-hmm. lying around. It never should have been made. And it was a very painful experience to have it just suck so much. 
but it never went anywhere and it shouldn't have gone anywhere. And it was really the reason that I began to figure out, okay, so how do you actually tell a story? So it sort of spurred me to get, you know, actually some craft, which is a good thing. But yeah, you can't find it anywhere. And believe me, if you could, I wouldn't tell you where. You catch someone off guard by talking about some project they haven't thought about in 15 years. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like when I watched the Casa del Bambini. No, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Apparently featuring your dad. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. My uh, dad is a doc. He's a decent human being, my dad. And so I did like the fundraising video for them and somebody posted it. Watching that, having yeah. seen your stuff, it's very difficult to take seriously. <laughs> it plays like satire. I know, I'm sure. I'm sure, yes. It's so hokey that I thought, yeah, this is I a know. joke. Uh, I know. But that's what they wanted, so you know. You no, no, I, I mean, I figured, you know, you had to make money somehow. Corporate videos are yeah, exactly. yeah. perfectly reasonable way to do yeah. it. So, yes, everyone give money to the Casa de Bambini. I mean, was there a connection there because of what the Casa de Bambini is? With Best and the Brightest, since it's about sort of a, an no, elite no, no. school? No, my, my dad is a pediatrician. Uh, he was a pediatrician. No, but wasn't it a school, and then they built a hospital on top of it? Yes, exactly. Good for you. But there was no connection to the to the Best and the Brightest. This was, you know, my dad, you know, basically wanted a, a video done so they could raise money to build a children's hospital, and he knew a filmmaker, so I got the gig. Yeah. You said that you had worked with Todd Phillips? The origins of the project were, I mentioned that I moved to L.A. right after we went through a whole private school uh, mess, and it was because of this, this project. Basically, one of the people who liked my Green Street Hooligan script mm-hmm. was a woman named Alyssa Phillips, who works for a producer named Mike DeLuca. I'm sure you know Mike DeLuca. Mm-hmm. So uh, they were at Sony, but she had sent me a book which was a true story about the first ever black college lacrosse team that was, you know, came to power at literally the height of the black power movement. It's a very funny book by the coach who was this 27-year-old Jewish guy they bring in to basically coach this, like, you know... Uh, I already know why Todd Phillips was interested. Exactly, right? Say no more. Ben Stiller, Adam Sandler, one of those guys would play the coach. Angry, righteous... Black guys with sticks beating up, like, you know, preppy white guys with sticks from Johns Hopkins. Yeah, playing on uh, paranoid racism fear, you know, all that stuff. That's right, exactly, with sticks. And Todd uh, Phillips' bread and butter, here we go. Yes, exactly. I, uh, I thought the book was very funny, and so I, as they say, they, you work up a take. And so I worked up a take and uh, pitched it to Todd and his company, and they signed on, and Todd signed on as director. And so when he signed on as director, then Warner Brothers signed on, and so I had my first real, like, you know, write a screenplay for the studio's experience. And so, yeah, moved my whole family out there to, to Hollywood and, and worked with Todd. The movie did not yet get made, but I worked on it for a while. You know, it was like a year and a half. How does that work? Because, for instance, I've seen a lot of, I've seen all those Jennifer Five episodes. Do you remember yes. that show? Mm-hmm. And one of the most interesting ones was one where Frank Darabont is talking about writing Mission Impossible 3 in Tom Cruise's house, which, of <laughs> yeah. course, didn't amount to anything because the script apparently isn't even related to what showed up, and Frank Darabont doesn't get a credit on that script. Yeah. So, uh, but my thought is, like, why? You know, what, did, what was Tom Cruise going to add to action beat, action beat, action beat, you know? I didn't work day to day with Todd. Todd would basically do a, you know a meeting on the on the project every maybe month or so. So I worked mostly with his the president of his company's guy named Scott Budnick, and so I was you know across from you know Scott's office, and then Alyssa, who was in Deluca's office, Deluca was on as producer, was uh, you know on the phone. Sometimes we'd go to Alyssa's, and it was basically you know like Deluca and Todd Phillips would you know circle in after like a big round of work. 
you know, I was working with the development executives. And that's, you know, that was my experience, you know, really writing sort of one of those, one of those. What's, what's, what do you do day to day if you're on a script? Because that's one of those things when people say in development, mm -hmm. and if someone asks me what that is, I can kind of explain it, but I would have no idea what the writer's doing every day. Okay. You, you know, you start by uh, really working up the oral version of it, which is your take, as, as it were, and that's what you pitch to the studio in order to get hired, mm -hmm. right? It really is the full movie. I mean, it's not like, you know, uh, a basic synopsis of the movie. Or You're not doing a treatment like or anything like that? Not yet. Okay. Officially, no. What you want to do after you actually get hired to do it, I mean, it's, it is, it's certainly written out in order to basically practice, you know, and so you could certainly call it a treatment. It has enough detail to be called a treatment. It's, you know, basically like a 20-minute monologue is what it is. And you really treat it like a monologue in the way that, like, you know where your punchlines are, you know, you really are practicing it like kind of a, a comedy. And you piece. read it out loud as if you're playing the narrator, essentially? You, you basically tell the story. You know, you basically do the campfire version of your story. And either they, they buy it or they don't. And so we pitched it again. I had to first sort of convince the DeLuca camp that I was, you know, the guy to write the story, which with my own little oral campfire dance. Then the Todd Phillips camp, and then Warner Brothers. Once Todd was on, Warner's was on. So that was perfunctory after Todd. When was this? 2005. Once, once you actually get the job and, you know, are working with these people, then you are, you know, first you are writing an outline, and the outline has a lot of detail. And once the outline is approved, and you need to get approved by all of these people, and that's, I would say, a pretty standard, you know, corporate-esque experience, of, you know, you get this person's set of notes and then you have to bounce them off that person's set of notes. Sometimes the notes are in conflict with each other and you have to sort of politically navigate that situation. Sometimes you have four or five or more people weighing in. And I was at the phase of the game where there were no actors involved and sometimes I've heard they can weigh in and their reps can weigh in. So it is a very, what, you know... And no one ever has a meeting to decide anything. And well, it's all your problem. Sometimes. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. So that, that sort of... Uh, that sort of maelstrom is basically the gig. And I think some people are very good at it, and I was not that good at it. You know, I think I was a little impatient, a little arrogant. I really wanted to do my own thing. Even though you know you're, you, when you're working within a studio system and you're going to make a formulaic comedy, you, you're, you still want, you know, you, you must have been aware of that. I was, exactly. And yet, I think that there's a, a, level, of, a level of cruise control that... Someone a little bit more mature might be able to actually really sort of navigate into a little. I mean, I guess. I mean, you, how do you? I guess you could explain like why did Robert Town write Days of Thunder? Could movie be a more you know cruise control than that? Yes. No, it can't. And yeah. but imagine this great writer sitting there trying to pitch this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yes, it's depressing. But it's also like, well, he must have. It, this couldn't have just been to finance something else. He actually had to believe in it. You know, I think I got I got impatient. I got frustrated. And, um, well, when in the process did you get impatient? A year and a half in. I mean, it, it was, it was definitely. And how many meetings have you done by this point? I mean, it was, it was basically, you know, I'm meeting with the the lieutenants on the project on a daily basis, mm -hmm. turning in pages at the end of the day, sort of like you know, classic studio Barton Fink. You mean like, you, you mean you're in and you're in an office writing and you just hand them and something? You hand, well, you email it, but in the, the inbox. Yeah, literally. Yeah. And, uh, and you're really, you know, co-writing, and, and, and it was not the kind of co-writing that, I mean, look, it, it, it was a great privilege, and I don't say this to be 
falsely modest or anything like that, but it was it was awesome to like you know have my own office given to me at Warner Brothers and like go on a lot. I mean, it really it does feel like you've arrived. But after a year and a half of it, and it really was just a sports comedy. I mean, maybe it'll see the light of day someday, but probably not. The um, you might it might have hit better like right around. Right before semi-pro, before Will Ferrell kind of stopped doing those. Yeah, maybe that might have been a good window for it. But um, right after Dodgeball or something, because I guess 2005 is exactly when they probably wouldn't have wanted right. to make it. So yeah, right, right. That was the window. All of the people that I worked with are very smart. I mean, Todd is very smart dude, and Mike DeLuca is brilliant dude, and his people are very smart, like all of them. But I, I felt like I did not have the right sort of temperament and skill set to be doing that kind of work. And so that's when I, I left, you know. Was it a matter of patience, work. just because it's such a laborious... You know what I honestly felt? I felt like I was not a good enough writer to be getting worse at the pace that I was getting. I mean, honestly, it separates you from your instincts. They basically say, in a very upfront way, we can't deal with your instincts right now. You know what I mean? We really need you to do what we said. Now, the fact that I... I'm saying one thing, and this person over there across the hall is saying another thing. You're going to have to figure that out. It's political. It's corporate. Deal with it. But separate yourself from the, the mystery, the thing that got you to be any good in the first place. This is an assignment. You're doing a corporate gig. Just do it. And I felt honestly, and this is perhaps very immature on my part, that I did not have enough skill to be able to put it aside. You know what I mean? I feel like I needed to be working on it every day or else I would just suck. I mean, I came to it kind of late. I wasn't one of these, like, you know, guys like M. Knight who was making 8mm stuff when he was 8 years old. I wanted to be a baseball player and, you know, I didn't start screenwriting until I was 20, 21. Well, when, when were you willing to embrace your mediocrity? I mean, that's really what they're asking. <laughs> that's what they're asking you to do. I know, right? I felt like I was only... I wasn't even going to be good enough to be mediocre. Well, no, but it's one of those things they're saying to you, all right, we like what you did. Now do a shitty version of it. And do it over a really long period of time, and then we're going to criticize you for being shitty about it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I guess I, I would just say this, just because, you know, obviously this is going to be, you know, on the internet. But it's not the individual people involved. It's that way of making movies that I felt like, man, I like... When studios are distributing stuff, they're really, really good at it. And, you know, the filmmakers that I really love have enough wind under their sails. They have enough clout to be able to go into the studio, whether it's as a writer or a director, and say, look, I have enough of a rep for you to be able to trust me. I had no rep at all. So I was just squashed. And so I was like, look, I'm going to reapproach. Did they whole... fire you? Is that how it worked? No, I mean, you know, I finished my contract. Okay. You know, which is... Technically, two drafts, but it's more literally it's like dozens and dozens and dozens of drafts because you do drafts for this person and then for this person and then for this person. And uh, how, do, how does anyone figure out which is the one they're going to use? Or know, even even just to pitch to an actor. I mean, like, hey, you want to do this? And then there's a there's 18 different versions of it that go in a totally different direction where your character has maybe got four lines. Yeah, no, I Ultimately, I was dealing with three fiefdoms. And they really are fiefdoms, right? The director's fiefdom, the producer's fiefdom, and the studio. You're climbing to get to the studio satisfaction level. When the studio is satisfied, then it's over. And, you know, at some point, I think if you're either more lucky or just much more skilled or whatever, 
then the studio is satisfied enough to actually really start, you know, putting its muscle behind and getting some actors involved and start producing dates on the calendar. Is there ever the urge to, to just continuously get things options and never get them made and just stay on the payroll? I mean, I guess that'd be frustrating, but if you know you're putting out things you don't believe in, really... The, the main thing was that... I mean, I, I know that sounds really cynical, but I, I, I guarantee people do it. So. They definitely do it, and I, I think the problem was that I, I left town, I came back to New York, and I put all of my efforts into The Best and the Brightest, and it worked. You know, so I could, you know, continue, I think, to work in Hollywood, and I think... There's definitely a big part of me that wants to continue working in Hollywood. Uh, it's very lucrative. It really is. And that, I have three kids, so it's no joke. I think that I would be a better ball player, as it were, now, after having gone through the system and just having directed a film, and I would feel a little bit more, just a little bit more sort of sanguine about the whole thing. But when I left and really started to say, okay, I believe in this, if you believe in this, then follow me. It really did work. And so this is what I want to continue to do. I mean, you know, like I I know that a lot of people say that the independent machine is broken. You know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, well, Miramax is gone and Warner Independent is gone. But I'm a huge, huge believer in, you know, Kickstarter and, you know, the crowdfunding uh, movement that's that's begun. And, I mean, you're gonna, are they going to go back to the, the dentist model? Is that... Well, I, I, I think that the idea of crowdfunding, of microfinancing films is much more inspiring and viable than the idea of, you know, going around to dentists for, you know, 10 and 20 grand. There's a hybrid, you know, possibility, which is essentially, you know, microfinancing your tickets and uh, asking, you know, those who can withstand a 10 or 20 grand contribution. And therein lies your financing of the film, which I really do believe in. You know, I think that as terrific as the studio is at, at distributing stuff and as masterful as some filmmakers are about how to navigate the studio system, I do think that an alternative is emerging, you know, thanks to social media and the way that, you know, so many new ideas around. But then how do you get people to see them? I mean, yes, there are tons of movies. Mm -hmm. And, for instance, even just the festival that you, you had your movie yeah. play at, 80% of those no one will ever see again. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. At minimum, 80%. Mm -hmm. Most likely more than 80%, yeah. in the, at least in this country. Mm -hmm. So how do you avoid being one of that 85% really? Well, I think... I, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm even talking movies that are in English. Not yeah, even. yeah, yeah. I have started a company called Audience Space, and I'm not going to you know, sit here and promote the company. But on the other hand, what do I do, right? I certainly believe that what the kind of film distribution that I believe in is the kind that is going to be dependent on a deeper connection instead of a broader connection. So the massification machine that is the studio is all well and good. And it is a great way to get very, very expensive movies seen very, very widely. So it's great at something that has high impact and then fades very quickly for a massive number of people. The nine-day wonder. Yes, exactly. Uh, at best. My gut tells me that there is enough actually sincere belief in movies. And believe me, I know the virulent anti-feeling that's out there on the internet as well. But anyway, to, to sustain a direct connection between filmmakers and their audiences. 
I mean, I think the kinds of independent films that I'm talking about are certainly not going to be those with a, you know, very, very large budget. But there are lots of different theories that are really sort of now starting to converge. You may have heard, like, a thousand true fans. Certainly, you know, like, the long tail and... and well, uh, Paul F. Tompkins, what he's doing, that's a really Paul good idea. Tompkins is a terrific idea. A filmic equivalent of Paul F. Tompkins is a very analogous thing to what I'm trying to do with audience space. I mean, okay. it's, it's, it is that. So... When you talk about Here, here's, here's the issue, though. With Paula Tompkins, you know what you're getting. With yeah. a movie, you don't know what you're getting. It's true, but a movie has a lot of elements in it. You know, if you're talking about making a, a film with, and this is a very small film, obviously, you know, 50 actors and 50 crew members, it's a lot of surface area from which to glean a lot of love, let alone if at least one of the actors is actually very well known. So the pre-existing fan base from a Neil Patrick Harris, for example could move the needle. It's certainly, what I'm talking about has a, it, it requires a fan that is much more deeply interested in films than the average browser, right? I want to be interested in seeing the next John Hodgman movie no matter what the fuck it is. Right. That's my kind of fan. And I think that there's enough fans out there who can actually sustain... But then in order for John Hodgman to continue working, he's got to be like Galifianakis and appear in something like What Happens in Vegas. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, that's... That's the life, but I mean, I think that if we're talking about... But he doesn't, but I mean, something he doesn't believe in, that he's just doing for the money. I don't know, I mean, speaking of John in particular, you know, he writes these books that he really believes in and makes a very nice... Right, I, I read they're funny. Yeah, they're very funny. We all find a way to sort of, you know, cobble through, you know. It's been a while since I've had to do a job that I really, really detested, fortunately. It's been a while since Game Killers. I, I guess I am more optimistic about the future of distribution along the lines like I'm describing. You talk about how is the movie going to get out there, it's like, how is the movie not going to get out there? You know, I mean, the way I see it, we're sort of in the post-distribution age. Theatrical is tough. On the other hand, we're in the middle of a process right now with the best and the brightest, where our most devoted fans, and it's funny, our most devoted fans aren't the NPH fans or the, even the Hodgman fans, it's this girl, Bridget Regan, who's in the movie for about, you know, ten minutes. But she's in that Legend of the Seeker show. Do you know uh, that? I don't know the show, but I, which character does she play in your movie? She's the girl who goes to the sex club with NPH. Okay. Right? Anyway. So her fan base is insane. I mean, truly the most absolutely overwhelmingly passionate fans that my movie has. And I'm not making a movie that is about... Regan, and yet they have already been so extraordinary in helping to mobilize our theatrical campaign. There's a woman down in, in Houston who has garnered over 200 demands by herself for Houston, literally because she's so she's so devoted to Bridget Regan. So these people are sort of out there ready to transmit their passion into action. So these kinds of people are out there, and in a way, I feel like Hollywood sort of leaves that money on the table by merely selling that person a ticket, or mere, merely selling that person a DVD. Filmmakers are definitely in need, but the fans are ready to give just so much more. Then you probably need to be. You need like a marketing department on set, perhaps. Absolutely. Oh, that's a very, very good point. Uh, there's, a, there's a very smart guy named John Reese. And John Reese, uh, who wrote a book called, oh, I'm going to forget the title, and I'm, uh, Think Outside the Box Office. John talks about exactly that. It's like you start 
you know, marketing your movie and you're writing the script. And you have a, a basically a producer for marketing and distribution who's in place tweeting everything, you know, uploading all the little digital artifacts that the filmmaking process leaves behind. The problem with that idea is that everyone is doing that already and there's such a glut of material that how do you make yourself different? I mean, it's almost irrelevant if your movie's any good. In fact, it's not almost relevant. It is irrelevant mm. if your movie's any good at that point. I mean, point. look, you find a way to look for the stuff that you actually are interested in on the internet and the stuff that you're not interested in, it just, you know, whips past you. And everyone else is the same. So... The people who are attracted to, to my movie, whether it's because Bridget is in, in it or Amy Sedaris is in it or John Hodgman or what have you, find a way to very, very swiftly self-select, you know, my material over something else. Those who, though the average internet user, I feel, isn't as much, you know, uh, slowed down by the glut as much as they do, you know, just seek out the stuff that actually interests them. And the world is big. There's a lot of, there's a lot of people. So that's, that's to our, to our strength. Yeah, I mean, I, the concern is always how do you how do you get to them? Because something you were mentioning earlier, it shines a light on the insular feeling of festivals. Mm-hmm. When you get a lot of appreciation at festivals, that doesn't translate to anything in the real world because people really want to root for a movie, mm-hmm. and they they pay extra for a ticket. Especially in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. if you lived here, you probably understand how you know what you know what a homer is. It's yes, everyone <laughs> here is so happy to have the fact that you're. I mean, they don't even notice. Hey. You shot in Philadelphia for the tax break. Now I don't. I don't think that's a problem. No. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But they will root for a movie just because it was shot here, even though it's kind of ignoring its existence. Right. They showed. They did the Answer Man, which was a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah. And you should have seen like everyone whooping and cheering, and of course nobody goes to see it when it comes out. Because right, right. it's a mediocre movie that you know, completely disposable. Yeah. And. I, I got the feeling that the director, when he was there, was in a similar position that you were. He was a writer, kind of that kind of thing. Yeah. And, you know, working with that level of celebrity and, you know, similar type of material. Right. Hell, there are probably 50 more analogies I come up with that, that, that connect you to. But he seemed kind of bewildered by the reaction because hmm. it was so big. And when the movie comes out, nobody sees it. And even though the Magnolia model is tough to make money on because of the day-and-date stuff and the pay-per-view and the HDNet movies and all that stuff, it still, you know, didn't make a dent. And why, you know, how, how, do, you, how do you separate yourself from that? Because you've got, obviously, a very appreciative audience mm-hmm. at the festival. But then you also have to be aware that a lot of the people sitting in, like, I have to be aware. A lot of people sitting in the audience worked on the movie yep. or know someone or whatever. Let's take the example of the best and the brightest, right? Now, if we had a special event screening in San Antonio, but I went, and I'm the writer-director, or Bridget Regan went, and her fans are in the, in the audience, you're going to have a much more Homer-like reaction to that film, and I'm not so sure that that's such a terrible thing. A rigged deck, as it were. You know what I mean? I mean... I think that it's it's closer to a a almost a live event than it is to a more shall we say antiseptic clinical I don't know anyone who's involved in this movie no one else who's involved in this movie is in the theater uh, kind of event but seems to me like a a victimless crime if if it really is a crime you know what I mean like you're making the the thing more of an event because people are more invested. And 
I think the way in which people become more invested, the way that you're describing, because people who worked on it are in the movie, or because you know the executive director of the film festival happened to work on it. I don't know if the overall takeaway of the experience is a regrettable one. You know what I mean? No, no, it wouldn't be. Yeah. For you, obviously, because but it's misleading because take away all the people who are rooting for your movie, how would a regular audience member see your movie? You have no idea. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you, you definitely are going to have that experience whether you like it or not. You know, whether it's on BitTorrent or whether it leaks out into the, into the public, what have you. I think there is an element of quote-unquote marketing that is the creation of these more live event kind of screenings. But I'm not sure that it's really anything to look down one's nose at. Like, for example, you know, is... I'm trying to think if this is a good analogy. It's the analogy I want to make. Bruce Springsteen is creating a much more significant connection between you and his music by uh, standing in front of you and performing it live. Is that a misrepresentation of his music, or is it just a more special experience? There's two answers. First, you paid more money to see him. Mm -hmm. Part of what you're paying for is to see him perform it live. A movie is different because it's recorded and it's going to play the same no matter where it is. And you know faintly what Bruce Springsteen is going to do, so it's a combination of fulfilling your expectations and being surprised at the same time. So it differs from a movie in the, in the way that if a movie did that, it would be a great movie. Every time. If something was able to fulfill your expectations and surprise you, hmm. how many times does that happen a year in a movie? Once? Twice? The, I mean, if the... And that's one of the reasons why, yeah, it's difficult to justify high prices of concert tickets, but I get it. Well, the, the, the demand justifies the, yes. uh, the high prices of concert tickets. And again, it's funny because we're talking about this, this very challenge with audience space and with the best and the brightest in particular the way in which to make the theatrical experience a little bit more special. And in, in a sense, to stack the deck. Because the experience that we've had screening a film, not just in Philadelphia, but in New York, has been special. And again, this is not just because I don't think. We've had some friends in the audience. I do think that because the film has this sort of dirty, illicit quality that takes people by surprise, the theatrical experience has been a friend to the film, which is why we want to try to replicate it. But we also do want to make standard in the presentation of the film a Q&A by one of the cast or crew, maybe a drink beforehand, maybe a little bit of a live pre-show. You want to make the Alamo Draft House thing on the road. But I guess there's a niche in there because exploitation films hit a certain market. But with your film, it's not an exploitation film. It's a specific market, but it's, it's not the fanatical type who would go to your movie? Well, there are, there are several markets that we certainly want to, with our extremely precious marketing budget, saturate as much as we can because the parents of actual, not just New York City, but Los Angeles private schools, those who live this life and really have a dominated good stretch of their psyche, you know, that's right in our wheelhouse. So those people are going to be very interested in getting a babysitter and, you know, making an event of seeing this world at long last mocked. Mm -hmm. We think that we have a good shot 
at the onion crowd. You know, those who like their filthy with a little bit more of a literary... Those, those who like their cancer aids. Yeah. <laughs> you, know what, you know what I'm talking about? I don't, but... Uh, okay, in the yeah. comment section of the AV Club... Yes. The first comment always says, you know, whatever it is, firsties or whatever that nonsense yes. is, and someone says, right. so you have cancer aids now? Like, right. <laughs> it's yes. a made-up disease. It's I a made-up disease, but yes. These kind of, these, again, I think these forces are sort of reaching out to each other. You have filmmakers who want to make some kind of theatrical experience to create the same stack deck, you know, like, overlove for their film, to make it feel special. And then you have people who want to have that special night out. And so, depending on what the subject matter in the film is, these people, I do think, just need sort of a way to find each other in the middle. And But how do you do yeah. it in a cost-effective way where you're not spending so much money on each screening? Because one of the ways that these films make money is because they show more than once. Mm -hmm. And you would have to find a way to show it five or six times in a weekend to even break even. That's, that's the plan. The plan is to do exactly that, you know, like two shows on a Thursday, Friday, and a Saturday. What we've seen in the last five years is the death of the mini-studio system. We've seen studios quite wisely, you know, basically say, all right, we can't go fishing for Pulp Fictions and win. We're going to lose. Let's focus on making Alice in Wonderland make a billion dollars instead of $400 million. Right. And I think that's just a much smarter thing for them to do. And so they fired everyone. Right. It, it, you create an impersonal right. product, but that, it's a product. But, so, and yeah. let's focus on marketing. That's what we do. Let's just get as many goddamn eyeballs in there for the nine-day window, and we win. And then the, the idea of, you know, smaller, deeper, longer-lasting connections through film is really going to be left to a really... Almost, here's a classic Paola Frichero term. I, I quote her a lot. She's so smart. But a psychographically led distribution concept. So uh, you're not coming out of the woodwork because you live in Milwaukee. You're coming out of the woodwork because you believe in Bridger Regan. And these people are in Helsinki. They're in Soweto. It's really just incredible. But we're going to get all of them in the movie. It may just be a DVD. You know, but certainly if there is any kind of agglomeration, we are going to rise to meet the need of that agglomeration. I, I can understand how the people so I would really identify with your film. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. It's uh, Siberia too. That's right. <laughs> so that's have you thought about like going to like you know internment camps and also showing it there? So, I, I, Guantanamo uh, Bay, perhaps. It's unnatural. Yeah. It's unnatural. made a movie called Clowns, but you also have the Kenny Main thing with the clown. Yes. Did you like that one? I did. I like that one. Is, is it just a thing with clowns you have? Or? I guess. I mean, Chris Morris is a thing with crows, so, you know. Yeah. It, crow, a crow is blown up in Four Lions, and a crow is a drug dealer in uh, Nathan Barley. Is that right? Yes. Uh, yeah, I guess I do have a thing with clowns. And the thing with the clown in the Kenny Main episode of Main Street is that it was very divisive. Like, that particular episode was where the internet haters completely went insane. Why? Like, I don't know. I love that one. But I but then people tell me, you're not the first person to tell me, like, what is your thing with clowns? And I don't know. I no, don't but I don't think, I mean, th th there's there's nothing in it. Look, it, it, does, it doesn't inspire vitriol in either direction. Yeah, like it you, does. No, but I don't know. See, that's the thing. It's people are like, worst episode ever. Uh, and we never get that. But, but we never get why? that. Why? I mean, it, I don't know. Look, it's a blackout sketch. Yes. 
That's it. it. It has to be amusing for two minutes, and it has to end with something slightly more amusing, and then it's over. I mean, I that's know. it. That's, that's the nature of those things. A lot of people not think that the ending was slightly more amusing, suffice to say. Or the clown thing. You remember we were talking about language being just like a checkout factor? Mm-hmm. Something about clowns just makes people check out and get pissed. Like, in all out of proportion. Maybe they're part of the Friedman family. Yeah, oh, I love that movie. Because he became a clown in it. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 